Welcome to Raising Standards with Rhiannon Evans and Matt Smith, a true Roman history podcast for true Romans. Hail Caesar. Welcome to Raising Standards, an occasional rewatch podcast in which we take a fond look at HBO's Rome. I'm your host, Matt Smith, and with me as always will be Rhiannon Evans, a classicist from La Trobe University. In this special episode, we were lucky enough to score an interview with William J. MacDonald. Bill is one of the creators and executive producers of Rome, and also the writer of the episode we just watched, Caesarian. It goes without saying that you will be hearing spoilers. This is a wide-ranging chat covering the length of the series, as well as a few bombshells about where it would have gone, had it not been cancelled. Rhiannon and I will likely have something to say about this, but we'll save our comments for the end-of-season wrap-up. A final note before we start, Rhiannon had to leave halfway through the interview to meet with a PhD student, so if you're wondering why she falls silent, then that would be why. And on that note, enjoy. Here he is, William J. MacDonald. So is historical epic, is that become your trademark now, would you say? Well, we kind of got started with it with Gettysburg. I'm not credited, but that was the first real historic uh, drama that I was involved in. And then uh, the Rough Riders and One Man's Hero and a bunch of these stories. We're doing the Flying Tigers here hopefully next year, which is about Americans and, and Australians and RAF guys who uh, taught the Chinese to fly and Got another one about Storyville, if you know about that. The history of the bordellos in New Orleans, uh, where jazz comes from. You know, I, I, I try to do something. I've always been involved with the scene since I was very young. So we've got another scene coming up uh, now with Chris Pine and some others. And I always try to find things that I don't know anything about, because then the process allows me to learn all this stuff. And so I had never knew anything about the history of Hanukkah. So, uh, yeah, that's what we're doing, the Maccabees. Uh, it's called the Warriors and Kings. It's about uh, these young rebels and uh, this very dysfunctional king of the Greek Seleucid Empire. The first season is essentially this, uh, it's called the Maccabean Revolt. And it was a, 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 a father of five sons and a daughter who, uh, Unbeknownst to him, had been prohibited from having a wedding in his little town, Modein, about 40 kilometers north of Jerusalem. And uh, these Greek, at the time, the Seleucid Empire, ruled Judea. And at the time, uh, they came and uh, attacked the wedding. And uh, he killed them all. And that began this 70-year Family's rebellion, and uh, the first season is kind of bookended by that wedding ceremony, and then his son Judah, the Maccabee, then restores the Temple of Jerusalem and lights the famous menorah. So we're going. Uh, I wrote it last year, and uh, got these guys to go for it. We've got Thomas Jane, if you know who he is, uh, the actor. He played the Punisher. He's yeah, but we're casting mainly out of England. The whole COVID stuff. I mean, I've been shooting here actually in my house uh, the last week here, a kid show, and it's just been crazy with COVID. I mean, so crazy. So, uh, yeah, that's what we're doing, the Maccabees. I try to figure out how to um, create things that are entertaining. You know, it's like a restaurant. It doesn't do you any good if you are a great cook and no one goes to your restaurant. So. You know, I, I've got to make sure that people actually watch these things. And then what I try to do is subliminally edutain. And that was the theory behind Rome as well. 
I think it definitely worked. We use it with our second year class and it's one of the choices of a piece of film about Rome that they can look at and analyze and, you know, go seek the sources, which I know is something that you, you did your homework with. And we've talked to some of the actors who said they were given homework to go and read about Rome. So I wonder if you can tell us, I mean, it sounds like this is the way you work generally. How much research did you do? I didn't know that much about Rome. We were in a very significant competition about Alexander the Great. In uh, competing with that other project, I had to learn what were the strongest uh, attributes that Rome had relative to Alexander's experience. And a lot of it has to do with modern culture, not just American government, but everything that Rome left as opposed to a more transient, in spite of the fact that Alexander built 26 cities that are named after him or something. He was a nomad, essentially, and he lived on a, in a more nomadic life and, uh, and in the end didn't leave huge institutions that survived the millennia, and Rome obviously did. And, and then, of course, then there's the Latin, the whole Latin attachment to Western culture and everything else. The uh, genesis of the thing was really, I'd read a couple of these different diaries, and, uh, and then I got my hands on a not really a diary, but an account of a guy named the Bestius, which was, so there was a guy not dissimilar to, um, you know, one of these reality shows that was required to put on the, uh, the games in the, in, later in the Colosseum, but in the Circus Maximus during this epic. That guy had a very tough job because whenever anyone won a great battle, they had to improve on the last guy's thing, right? And so, and this guy actually was uh, finally murdered by a polar bear because he brought in all these exotic animals. He's just trying to up the game every every time to try to make it more entertaining. I got those two things, and then uh, the management at HBO just said, "What are you up to?" And I said, "Well, you know, uh, I got this idea of doing the Sergio Leone version." of ancient Rome. We've seen Quo Vadis, we've seen Cleopatra, we've seen all this stuff where everybody is in beautiful silk white robes and uh, they've come out of battle and they look like they just came out of the salon. Uh, everybody, everything's marble and it's glittering. And these statues, you ever seen what real statues in Rome look like? They were gaudy. They were Just consider for a minute that you can start with you know, a dead guy, or you start with two guys in a fight. And by the way, the D story is going to be the major political figures. The primary story is going to be these two soldiers. The secondary story, which was probably the hardest fought battle, this is where Bruno came in very helpful, because he agreed once we hired him, was the females. So, I mean, the B story is all about women. They were the most powerful women in the ancient world. They could inherit. They could own companies. They could divorce. They could do things that no one had ever even considered in the ancient world. And, of course, whatever went on in the battlefield directly impacted their status, which is why the titles have the graffiti. That's the whole idea is to say, pay attention. What's going on with all those big shots out in uh, Pharsalus and all these places where they're waging these battles directly impacts your social standing within your own community right here. Uh, that was probably the hardest fought battle of the whole thing, was to concentrate so heavily in a sword and sandal on the women. That's really interesting because I, I appreciate the, well, certainly the the attention on Polo and Varenus and the women as well as 
not just the women, but the kind of lower order soldiers are rarely featured in those sword and sandal epics. It is usually emperors or it's Julius Caesar, people in togas, not people who, as you say, get down and dirty in the mud. (laughs) Right. And I do love the opening titles as well, which I think, again, shows you kind of the grit and the mess of Rome, that it isn't gleaming. You know, it smelled bad. That was one of my... uh partners years ago was the executive at Paramount when they made The Godfather. And his whole thing was, you got to smell the spaghetti. Uh, up until that point with The Godfather, all Italians had been portrayed by Jewish people. It's the first time they'd actually cast all Italians. And in fact, Coppola's family, a lot of Sicilians. So they actually had real people that you know knew the old country and they knew where Corleone was. And they knew what it was like, uh, the, the mano nero, the black hand and all that. So that's what we tried to do here was to tell a story of the common man in ancient Rome, tell it uh, in a compelling way that actually investigated all levels of society. I mean, I think some of the most interesting stuff about Rome is in the Subaru, if you know, the Rome at all, which is in the old uh, prostitute district. It still exists, of course, next to the Jewish quarter. And, and this was an empire that had no constabulary. There were no police. There was no, there's nobody. It's a fascinating thing, really. So did you have a lot of challenges actually being able to film it in Italy? Because this is 15 years ago, so that wasn't normal for a production, especially for it to be scaled like this. Uh, Well, uh, it was not my first choice. My first choice was Australia, believe it or not. Second was South Africa. I mean, I'd done some work with Philip Noyce on a couple movies, and I'd gone down there with Terry Hayes and a bunch of others, and I really like Australia. It's really a cool place. That would be really cool in the Senate scene when Julius Caesar is getting stabbed. If he's gone, that's not a knife. This is a knife. <laughs> yeah, that's a knife. We're talking about Dundee, yeah? <laughs> the truth is is that it was hard fought. So so the way it was rendered. So in the end, Bruno had done The Huntress, and Milius was always angry at the studio. So I, I never could get those guys to kind of go. And so... We went on down this path on this outline that I'd written. HBO at the time, the guys that ran it, uh, real uh, Anglophiles, they basically believed that there are only two places to shoot anything, New York City and London. And that's kind of it. So they were shooting The Sopranos in New Jersey and, mm. and crossing South Manhattan to go to Silver Cup. I mean, think of what how crazy Sex in the City shooting in. I, I lived in New York for 10 years. I mean, I know it very well. I shot two movies there. You have to be insane to do that. So they finally said, no, no, you're never going to get actors to go to Australia. And I said, well, look, the way it's been rendered now, we've got uh, eight hours of daylight. Have you ever spent winter in London? You're going to have six hours maximum. I mean, you're talking about pushing out this schedule where we're going to be talking about holding actors for years, unless we rewrite it completely for more interiors, and then it takes away the grandeur and all that. And so they finally said, well, where would you want to do it? And I said, well, I lived in Rome. I speak Italian. And they said, but no actors are going to go to Rome. It's like a third world city. So they finally said, okay, we'll go scout it there. And we went to Cinecita, and and then it sort of began, this whole thing where we could maintain the daylight so that it just wasn't so closed in. Because I was afraid that this was going to end up you know, being like a soap opera. Everyone's giving orations and things in the Senate and, who the hell cares? You want to be out and see what this was life was like. I mean, 
one of the great books that I handed out to Emilius and to Bruno was Wins in the Asian World. You know, one of the things that you don't think about is, you know, you see Julius Caesar, he's, he's in Britannia, then he's in Gaul, then he's in Asia Minor. I mean, what? How the hell is he getting around like this? And where is he staying every night? And, of course, there are these great books about the traditions of how travel. I mean, you even think about Christ, Mary and Joseph, and everyone's, they're traveling to uh, Nazareth, uh, getting to Bethlehem. They spent the night where? In a manger. Okay, well, you know, what, where did they spend the night two nights ago? Yeah, that was all really good detail stuff that I thought would be great. And you saw that kind of, you know, as they're moving along, you know. We sort of, sort of showed the process, which was the idea. I actually wanted to go back a little bit um, to, you mentioned Cleopatra as one of the women, and we just watched episode eight from season one, where we just we did, recorded a chat about it the other night. I wondered whether we could dig into the detail about Cleopatra, and because you wrote that episode. So some of the choices yeah. you made about her. So we've talked about, you know, the sword and sandal epics. She seems very different in this to the Liz Taylor version or going back to uh, the earlier versions too, where she's a femme fatale, I think. Um, right. is, how did you well, conceptualize her? <laughs> well, you know, the, the reason I ended up doing hate, because I wasn't going to write any of them, was no one had ever heard Egyptian. So I went, okay, I'll tackle that one. You guys go carry on. <laughs> we'll figure this out one way or another. And then as I got deeper into it, you know, I read accounts of Cleopatra, and, you know, she was not a particularly attractive woman. She had this charm about her. She had a very large nose, is what's always been reported. And I thought, how interesting this is, she's the last pharaoh. And she's got a brother who's trying to kill her. In fact, he goes to great lengths to kill her. And the reason that he wants to do that is obviously the, the succession of the throne. But they were gods, so they can only marry gods, right? So... Julius Caesar is supposed to be a descendant of the goddess Venus of Greek mythology. So I thought, hmm, this is interesting. This lady's not going to have a lot of time. She's <laughs> If she can escape her brother's murderers and meet this guy, she's got to consummate this little operation like right now. you know. And that whole thing about being in the carpet, that astrologer, that's all by accounts from Plutarch. You know, There are accounts about that whole encounter. And so I thought... How interesting is she took out an insurance policy? Well, Caesar's really old. He's 51 uh, in those days. Pretty old, you know. Even at the turn of the century in America, the average age was 47. So, it, it, you know. so he was an old, old guy, and who knows whether he can actually father a child. But he's got, she's got to close this deal. And it's got to happen right then. So I thought, how interesting that her escorts, her bodyguards, she decides to hedge the bet. Again, empowering women, not necessarily in the most, uh, I suppose, uh, contrite way, but certainly as a power broker, she, she was going to get the job done. The word power broker, I think you're quite right, is the one I always think of with her. So I'm so glad that you thought of her like that. And I also wondered, and Matt probably thinks I'm overreading, that there were questions about her son Caesarian's parentage. Like the Romans didn't really want to believe that Caesar was the father. So I didn't know no. if you were playing with that or if it was just about the narrative drive of no, the series. No, well, there were two things. There were two elements to that. One is there was that doubt. There was a doubt cast about the actual 
paternity of the child. But more importantly, uh, for the third season, which we never got to do, they canceled us and they canceled Deadwood. Deadwood was maybe the best series ever made, I think, kind of. It's right up there. That writing is just mm -hmm. stunning. But in the third season, if you'll recall the last episode of season two, he says, let me tell you about your father. And they're walking along and he puts his arm over him, right? So what happens in season three really played into episode eight. That's where we were going, which was Pulo stays in Rome and he becomes sort of the capo de capi. You know, he's, he's kind of running the Suburu. And he's chosen by Augustus. Well, the whole thing was bookended. The original thing I wrote started with an old man because Pula lived till he was 88. And he's sitting by a river with his granddaughter. And the Praetorian Guard arrives. They say, sir, because he's the first Praetorian, right? We'll go back to why that means something in season three. And they order his suicide. And why? Because Pulo's writing the real account. He's been scribbling down. And what he's saying is, whoa, you know, the emperor got buggered by these German guys when he was 12. And he was scared to death. And he, the emperor doesn't want any of this to come out. And the fist jumps, and we cut back, and it's Mark Antony and Caesar. And Caesar's going, God damn, they're going to mutiny. And they're at the Rubicon. He goes, I can't cross. I destroy the Republic. He goes, well, you can't stay here. They're about to desert. They've been seven years. What's wrong with you, man? And this begins this thing. And then you cut to the two boys, our guys, fighting. The story for the third season was, so Pulo is elevated to the Praetorian Guard. He's the captain of Augustus, Octavius is Praetorian Guard, right? Meanwhile, because you understand the casting, right? So we had the kind of screw-up, drunken brawler is Irish, and the kind of more Presbyterian career soldier is Scottish. I'm half and half, so that's the famous joke. I'm in desperate need of a drink, but I can't bring myself to pay for right? <laughs> I used to tell that to the two actors all the time. You know, The Scotsman, the, the career guy, who's not real good with ladies, takes off. And he goes, originally it was going to be the third season was the Tattenberg Forest, Tattenberg, right? Yeah. And there were lots of reasons why we didn't want to glorify Germans, uh, just politically in this town, it's pretty rough. So I said, well, what about Scotland? I'm Scottish, I know about it. Adrian built a wall, ultimately, to keep these people out. They're so crazy. And so the third season was the sun goes with Pulo. Well, guess what? Octavius orders him to assassinate the leader of the rebellion. So he has to go and kill his son, his biological son. That's why we were setting this up to get us there. And that, of course, then enters Pulo into the world of Scotland in the first century, and it, all sorts of great things were going to happen then. Uh, we were going to lose a little bit of the, of the ladies in Rome because everything kind of moved, but uh, that, that was the theory there. So it was all tied together, you know, so you were going to take Caesarian to Scotland? Caesarian goes with Pulo, or with yeah. uh, uh, Arenas, to Scotland. He, he says, oh, let me tell you about your father. And they mm -hmm. disappear. He goes back to where his accent is from. <laughs> and then the son becomes the leader of the great Scottish rebellion. Wow. The, Octavius has to go, and, and as the leader of the Praetorian Guard, Pulo's assigned to assassinate the leader, and the leader is his biological son. So was another part of that going to be 
I thought that there was something unresolved with time and and perhaps Jesus Christ. There were thoughts about that. I, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> you know, we never we never took that 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 far. Correct me if I'm wrong, of course, but I believe that you were responsible for writing the Bible for this show. Yes, that was my idea. That's not really true. So I had uh, made a deal with Ridley Scott to do a, a movie about airplane repossessions, which is something crazily that I did in the 80s, early 80s in Thailand and some other places. I'm a pilot and uh, used to fly all sorts of weird airplanes. And he actually had in his office over there at RSA in those days, I had a Coliseum kind of built up and he was talking about Gladiator. And I said, well, you know, I really think if someone did this thing, the version of it smells bad. You know, there's a fly on his eye. It stinks. There are fires burning. There are 900 baths. And she said, you know, typical North England guy. I have had it, baby. And I said, okay, well, I'll give it a shot. And then I I went home and I started uh, typing. And then I'd heard that, because I'd done the Rough Riders with John Millius, I'd heard that he had worked with HBO on a book that he'd adapted. And they'd spent a zillion dollars. And so I approached HBO and said, you know, we could probably fix that (laughs) if we wanted to go in this direction. And they agreed that the raw version of raw, for the same reasons we we discussed before, that how about seeing what it really is like? It's it's like those great, I mean, once upon a time in the West. I mean, look at that. I mean, you mm. just go, wow, that was an ugly bit of business, you know, or or uh, Unforgiven. You look at Unforgiven. That's a terrible little town. I mean, you do not want to go to Unforgiven. So I'm curious. Then, 15 years have passed since the show, and how television is made and the scale that television is made on has definitely changed. I don't want to say that budgets are bigger, but because I don't know that, but you seem to be able to do a lot more these days with television. But Rome was really the one of the first heavily anthologized series that told it, yeah. serialized like that. So if you were making it now, if you had the resources that you have now, what would you be doing different with it? And what do you wish you would have been able to do? Oh, well, I would have loved to have a third season or a fourth season. We really <laughs> had it. <laughs> we knew what we were doing by then. And Bruno's brilliant. I, I think we could have told a story that even got more human as it went along, which was kind of cool. In regard to the resources, at the time, it was the most expensive anyone had ever even considered. I mean, I probably would have preferred to do it in Australia or South Africa <laughs> because in the end, we didn't really have movie stars that are temperamental about locations. In regard to the technologies advanced to such a degree now that these budgets, aside from maybe the Game of Thrones sort of thing or Westworld, something that's got those production values, that's just expensive stuff to do. It's just not easy to do. What we're doing you know, I think we're going to get the same grit and the same character, and we're doing it for 20% of it, of 15 years ago. And again, it has a lot to do with technology. It has a lot to do with the change in the industry. I'm no genius, but I really saw television as where we were heading. And irrespective of COVID or any of these things that sequester everybody, but the idea that what are the experiences that we like, really like in a theater? Sure, the great spectacles. Uh, sure, the visual effects. I think we like to be scared together. I think we like to laugh together. Otherwise, date night and all that, the technology's too good. 
And I always thought that it was always going to be in, at home and at your leisure. The idea of programming 8 o'clock on a Friday night is when I want to watch my show. So I, I always thought that the, the medium in the home would dictate more what we would be programming. Yeah, right. You know, there were a lot of problems, Matthew, in Italy. And I love Italy. Don't get me wrong, but <laughs> that ain't easy. I don't know. I don't know if you've spent a lot of time there, but there's no such thing as a repairman. Let me just put it that way. So, you know, if your television breaks, get a new one. <laughs> and that kind of goes through the production. You know, it was pretty nutty. Where did the decisions to follow history closely and to be a bit narratively convenient come into play? Because you come up with a lot of storyline for characters like Atia, for example, and also her daughter Octavia and the relationship that she ends up with having with Sevilla, which yep. I found very interesting. But, you know, as far as historical people go, we know very little about those characters to that extent. Where did that kind of decision between what is historically accurate and narratively interesting and convenient come into play for you? That goes back to that primary uh, directive that I was very insistent upon that if we do this as just sword and sandals, a bunch of guys out there blazing away like Romans, no one wants to watch this thing. We're in a new age now. And again, that's 15 years ago. But I mean, this has to have some interest to a broader audience. And so I, when you see the, the, the Bible, uh, you know, the A stories, the soldiers, the B stories mm. are the ladies. The C stories are the politicians. And the D stories are like Timon and those guys the denizens of the Subaru, that sort of thing. So we made it up. We had no reference other than she was a Julii. You know, we knew that there was the Pompey-Julii rivalry. We knew the family, though patrician and maybe descendants of gods, at least in their own opinion, were broke until the Gallic Wars. We knew a lot of things that we could set up as historic realities and then really extrapolated from what those realities would be as to how someone would react given those realities. It's Mm. We didn't have any source material because there isn't any. It must have been challenging as well to find the right cast for this show. I think you've nailed it in like, you know, 99% of the cases for this show. The cast is just perfect, particularly Kevin McKidd, Ray Stevenson and Polly Walker. As soon as you see her, you just go, "Uh uh-oh. This is her show. Yes. I mean, it is. Uh, the one that was, uh, the one that I uh, thought was the greatest, and I, it was not my strongest uh, advocacy, was Karen Hines. I, mm. That came out of left field. And that came from HBO to play Caesar. I, I just didn't, you know, I'd seen him in Some of All Fears. I'd seen him in, I don't know, some other things. And it just, that came out of the blue. Uh, but everybody agreed, particularly Bruno and I and some we went out with it. I thought he was fabulous. Who would you have gotten to play Caesar if you had your way? I was thinking more of an older guy, uh, you know, Richard Harris type. Uh, I was thinking more that this is a guy that's a seasoned politician. Mm. He's not so vigorous. He's a little frailer. Uh, you know, they're going to murder him, right? <laughs> Peter O'Toole, you know, I was thinking maybe, you know, we get some guy that, really has this magnetism, this charm that you can't, it's infectious. You're almost powerless. I don't know if you've ever met O'Toole. 
There wasn't a woman in the room that, you know, he, he just would indicate which one he wanted. That was, they'd swoon, you know. More of that kind of a, a patrician kind of guy. But, uh, you know, I, Heinz killed it. I was wrong. <laughs> mm. I think he's cut from the same cloth. He is. More, more, more or less. So you, you got those, like, Peter O'Toole kind of Richard Harris mm. elements in it. Yeah, yeah. I, I just saw him as elderly, but you know, the group's decision was correct. Mm. So, how did you balance the decisions with the battle scenes? I feel that this is a, a challenge for television these days, and would have potentially been even more so back then. So, something like the Battle of Pharsalus all takes place off screen. That was because we burned too much money. I'm not taking away from anybody else that wrote it, but there were a couple of other episodes that I wrote just to kind of see if we could figure this out budgetarily. But we had spent so bloody much money in the first three episodes. Uh, and we had some real problems, uh, maybe replacing central cast members, uh, certainly the director and a bunch of other stuff. That's why we marooned them on that beach, was to slow the yes. burn down. Uh, <laughs> and the reason we didn't see Farsalis is we couldn't afford it. So you had to be after the fact. And then we were so behind the eight ball on the budget that I said, look, guys, why don't we take that other that's town? They get marooned somewhere else. Episode seven or eight. Let's move it up and slow this burn down. Because if we continue this burn rate, this plane's going down. We're going to run out of gas real quick. <laughs> yeah. We got to do something here. And so that's why it's so obvious. I mean, I, you go, they all come back and say, how was the battle? <laughs> well, yeah. I think you get through that. Farsalis is a, is a bump in the road for sure. And then uh, if you really you know know how to do this, then you kind of go, oh, I get what they're doing. These dudes are on this island. Start to pay attention to what they're doing here. Yeah. Drink the blood of the dead people, I think, was what Pullo's solution was. There's never a scene between Caesar and Pompey in this. And that's good historically, I guess, for this period of their life that they're in. But was that ever a temptation to get those two great actors, yeah. even yeah, in a flashback? Uh, well, not even in a flashback. I mean, mm. the reason I argued against an actual meeting with Pompey, I think, is the, you know, you know, the big fight all through this thing was keeping the women. I'm just telling you. Mm. If you wanted to suggest something new or anything else, it was going to come at the expense of those ladies. And they drive the thing, man. It, it's the thing that makes it work. I'm really glad you died on that hill, so to speak. <laughs> no, it, it, it was so different. Well, what do you think all these guys are doing? Why are they building monuments? Why are they building statues? Why does Cleopatra make him a god when she comes to mm. Rome? It's all about women, right? That's what Ferraris are about, the, the private jets and all this stuff. <laughs> to deny that just seemed to me just in a, a terrible mistake in 2006 or whatever. So by extension then, two of the characters that you had kind of carte blanche to work with because they're not in the history books are Pullo and Varinus. And Varinus in particular, his home life is just an absolute mess. I mean, I, I love how much of the ground level of Rome you get to see with his home life and how much stress the army life puts between him and his wife. But when you get to the end of the first season in particular and his, and his wife just kills herself, what was your thought process with that and of taking the character to that place and, and how you decided to tell Varinus's home life? That's a little more complicated. You know, I, I, I come from a military family. At the time, 
you know, we were engaging in, I think, absolutely absurd adventures in the Middle East. I work in the Middle East at the refugee camps. I do uh, short videos for cell phone distribution with the Royal Family of Jordan and some others over there. And so I've seen a lot of that. I, I kind of was like, what is the effect on these guys? We're, wow. abandoning, we're abandoning these people. They come back. They're missing pieces. of the, And what is their life like? My father was in World War II. And grandfather, these were United States Marines. It's an adjunct to the U.S. Navy here. And uh, so I just thought, what is the soldier's existence? What's it like to be the guy when you come home? Mm. There's your 20 years service. You retire after 20 years, not four years, not three years, not Israel, two years or Switzerland, two years, 20 years. What does service really mean to these people? Are you just fodder? And I, I thought that would be an interesting thing to investigate. The the, the home life uh, was mirrored, on, you know, of home lives that I was reading about. A lot of that uh, was really outlined by me. I mean, I did a 199-page Bible. I mean, it's got dialogue. It's got everything in it. But the actual grunt day-to-day was really Bruno. I, I can't take that away from him. He's, he's a good yeah. man. I just think we need to put stuff on television that starts to educate some people. No one knows what anything about anything anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm very proud of it. I think we, we pulled off something that was really great. I, I think it's set a bar that is a great bar. You've been listening to Raising Standards, an occasional rewatch podcast in which we take a fond look at HBO's Rome with Rihanna Nevins and Matt Smith. And my thanks to our guest today, William J. McDonald. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you may cast your pod. Please leave a review. They are always very appreciated. You can like Raising Standards on the Emperors of Rome Facebook page, and you can follow both myself and Rhiannon on Twitter. Rhiannon is at Dr. Rhiannon Evans. I am at Nightlight Guy, and the podcast is at Rome Podcast. In the next episode of Raising Standards, we will be looking at Season 1, Episode 9, Utica. So until then, I'm Matt Smith. You've been fantastic, and thanks for listening.